every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in once again for Tim Alders. Glad you could tune in. Going to make it worth your while, too. You may not uh, come away with all the answers to all of the world's problems, but you're definitely going to come away more sure of who you are and what you stand for than you were before. And that's a good thing. So I, I hate to beat the drum on COVID, but you know what? It's this is this is becoming the defining characteristic of our society. It's the dynamic that's driving so much public debate, so much public policy, so many of the questions, so many of the conflicts that we see around us right now all come back to COVID. And particularly one of the areas where we are starting to see some very clear lines form is the idea of forced vaccination. Now, I'm only going to speak for myself, so this is just my opinion. You're welcome to it. But uh, it's not that I, I don't necessarily fear the vaccine. I've heard things about it that make me question, is it really as safe? Is it really as effective? I mean, because every appearance that I see as I look around right now is the virus is moving through society with or without the vaccine. It's outpacing the vaccine as near as I can tell. There are plenty of stories, small percentage wise, yes, but still people who have suffered injuries or other complications due to taking the vaccine. Things that I think a person should have to take into consideration. I mean, it's not a deal breaker necessarily, but it's definitely a risk that should be factored in before you make any kind of a decision as to whether or not to take that. It's like the meme that I saw a few weeks ago that said something about, well, I could always take off my tinfoil hat. Good luck removing those spike with those protein spikes, you know, from your body. So, you know, there, it's a, it can be a permanent thing. And I think a person should go into it informed and it should absolutely be a product of their consent, explicit consent before they do it. But of course, the fear of COVID is justifying people, you know, to really pressure. And I guess this is where I have the biggest problem. Like I say, the vaccine itself, there are some some reservations, but I could see it having a place. You know, assuming that it is actually preventing, you know, more severe sickness or, you know, helping people fight off the disease. And I think both of those things can be true as well as, you know, at the same time as being, you know, hesitant about it. It's the idea of government force being brought to bear to get someone to take a substance into their body. I have a real problem with that. And I and that's that's kind of the place where I'm drawing my line. You want to persuade me? Please persuade me. That doesn't mean bribe me, doesn't mean browbeat me, it doesn't mean beg me or otherwise guilt me or shame me. It means give me the solid reasons why. Persuade me. Do it with love if you can. See, not everybody 
you know, resonates with, <laughs> with that approach. But do not force me. So that's where I'm coming at it from. And I understand. I'm straddling a few lines there. I get it. Not everybody. Some people are just hard and dry. Nope. <laughs> nope. 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 Ain't ever going to happen from my cold, dead hands, etc. So I think that there could be, there could be good from people being vaccinated. I'm not saying I know it as a, as a imperative. It is. And therefore that should be no matter what they think. I just think it could be. But if you want that to happen, you've got to give people the choice to freely choose, not be, not be manipulated or leveraged into it with, well, you know, if you want to keep feeding your family, you want a roof over your head, so you don't want to operate in society like you're some kind of an insect that anybody can step on at any time because of your, you know, second-class status. That's not the same thing as a person freely being able to choose this. I kind of like the approach that John Tamney took in a recent piece he wrote for Real, for Real Clear Markets. He starts out the piece by talking about how at the airport this week, he says it was more than sad to see a mother trying to get her seemingly two-year-old daughter to put on a mask. The daughter was frustrated, obviously confused and crying. The mother didn't know what to do, but there are federal rules. Some would call them child abuse. The crying, confused child over masks, he says, brought to mind the bigger debate of the moment about vaccinations. It's estimated that a majority of adult Americans have been vaccinated against the virus, but there are holdouts, presumably for a variety of reasons that don't need to be listed here. Tamney says whatever the reasons for the unvaccinated remaining that way months into the mass vaccination process, wise minds in the political and scientific class should encourage the right of individuals to refrain, even if they disagree with the holdouts. They should do so because they crave knowledge. Free people making choices without any force are crucial in the face of a spreading virus. And sadly, this truth has been forgotten from day one of the virus panic. He says, going back to March of 2020, it was completely forgotten by the political class that freedom is decidedly more than a singular virtue. In reality, free people produce crucial information. Now look at where he's going with this. Because applied to the coronavirus, the logical answer with gain of knowledge, top of mind, was for politicians to leave people alone. Some were going to quarantine in total. Some were going to wear masks everywhere while avoiding all human contact. Others were going to be out in public and, uh, and, and pu- in public businesses with masks dangling off of one ear as much as possible, given their need to socialize, sans cloth covering their mouths. And still others... Quite likely, the younger among us were going to hit every party and every bar they could. Similarly, private businesses were in some instances going to shut down altogether, shut down partially, or not at all, and in many ways in between. What's important is that varying actions in response to the virus were going to produce voluminous information about how it really spreads, along with the behavior and level of business openness most associated with spread. Human action was going to teach us about the behavior most associated with good health outcomes, while lockdowns based on highly limited information was going to blind us. Now, he says all of this must be considered in light of all the vitriol being directed toward the unvaccinated. Supposedly, they're selfish for not helping others by getting the shot. Aren't we all in this together? Well, actually, he says we're not. John Tamney says America is not a collective. Rather, it's a collection of people who largely descend from individuals who risked everything 
in order to get away from collectives. If the unvaccinated worry the vaccinated or the ill, the vaccinated and ill shouldn't force their fear on those who choose not to be vaccinated. They should just stay home. The selfish ones are those who demand that others do as they've done. Just the same if a private business of any kind chooses to require proof of vaccine in order to enter, well then so be it. Freedom cuts both ways. What business owners do on their property should not be the business of government either way. Notable here is that restaurant mogul Danny Meyer is requiring patrons to be vaccinated. Now, he didn't need a law. And that same Meyer banned smoking in his New York restaurants long before Mayor Bloomberg instituted a broad decree. See, Meyer didn't need a law in the 1990s either. Freedom works, and freedom often leads. After which, some who are passionate about full societal vaccination just can't believe others haven't done as they've done. At the New York Times, columnist Charles Blow wrote in disdainful, in disdainful fashion recently that there are Americans who are determined to prove they are right, even if it puts them on the wrong side of a eulogy. In other words, Blow believes the unvaccinated are in the process of committing suicide. Okay, but if he's right, why the need for forced vaccination from the commanding heights? If it's really true that getting a shot is the difference between living and dying, all coercion from politicians is wholly superfluous. Those in denial will get the vaccination because they want to live. No command and control required. And those that don't? Well, the reality is that humans drink, drug, and commit deathly dangerous acts all the time. In a free society, we can't force people to live. Also, we learn what's bad for our health from those freely living without regard to their health. In other words, freedom is healthy, even if it's just to learn from the mistakes of others. Which brings us back to the skepticism about getting the vaccination. For the longest time, Blow's New York Times has reported that nearly half of U.S. deaths related to the virus were associated with nursing homes. Now, one assumes this is true, but even if not, it may explain, in addition to already achieved natural immunity, the reluctance on the part of many adults about vaccinating against what, in a death sense, is largely associated with the very old and very sick. Yet Blow says the vaccine skeptics are risking death, which is why he should want freedom from forced vaccination. Indeed, the only way for the skeptics to shed their skepticism is for what the Times has long reported to not be true. Of course, the only way to prove it's not true is for free people to get to make their own decisions about whether or not to get the vaccination. Yes, free people once again produce crucial information. And if it proves true that a failure to vaccinate is the path to hospitalization and death, rest assured that broad societal vaccination will soon enough be a reasonable aim. See, I don't disagree with that statement. I don't disagree with that approach. If you and I were looking around and we were seeing stacks of bodies, we were seeing, oh my goodness, the morgue is overwhelmed. They've had to bring in refrigerator trucks. They're using bulldozers, creating mass graves. I think we would take very seriously the idea that we've got to do something extraordinary. But we're not seeing that. And I know the news media has has turned up the fear beating again, you know, the beating that drum of fear to a fever pitch. Well, but the ICUs are busy. They're maxed. There's, uh, There's very little availability of beds in the hospitals. And that may well be the case. If I take them at face value and say, all right, maybe that's true. But I'd also like to know, just for the sake of some 
perspective here, what do the uh, emergency rooms or what do the ICU look like at this time of year? Is it normally full? Do you have people in there because they've injured themselves water skiing or mountain biking or motorcycle riding or otherwise being out and being active? Do you see what I'm getting at? I don't think it's quite as a pat answer as as some people would like us to see it as. But I do not like the idea of, of using government force or the threat of government force or even government partnered with private business coercion to get people to do something that, uh, for whatever reason, they don't want to do. If they could look around and they see the risk and say, ooh, I'm seeing a lot of my friends sick, hospitalized, dead, and dying, you better believe people would put the mask on, people would get the vaccine, because they would recognize it's in their self-interest. But what we're seeing is incongruent with what uh, the media is telling us and what government is insisting that we do. That uneasy feeling of trying to hold those two contradictory thoughts simultaneously, that's a thing they call cognitive dissonance. And I think I have felt more throughout this pandemic than any other thing in my life is that cognitive dissonance of trying to hold those conflicting thoughts and get my mind around it. I'm going to err on the side of freedom more often than not. And part of this comes down to, I really do believe that fears of the coronavirus are being overblown. I saw a recent post on issues and insights. Three charts the Delta variant scaremongers don't want you to see. Let me share this with you. I think you'll find it interesting. While the sharp rise in Delta variant COVID cases has sparked a renewed push for mask mandates, lockdowns, and vaccine passports, there's been little attention paid to just how dangerous this variant is. Perhaps that's because the evidence suggests it's far less of a public health concern than previous outbreaks. Just how much less of a threat isn't precisely known, but there are ways to gauge the risk. One is to look at the number of COVID cases and the number of deaths happening right now compared with what happened a year ago. What do you find? Well, first of all, there are fewer cases than last year. From June to August this year, there have been more than 2 million recorded COVID cases in the U.S., Over the same days last year, the total number of COVID cases was 3.1 million. Okay, how about deaths? Well, from June 1st through August 9th, the total number of COVID fatalities was 20,149. Last year, the death count was 62,287. In other words, cases are 41% lower than during this time last year, and deaths are 66% lower. And by the way, they include a nice chart from the CDC showing COVID's bite has declined. Looked at another way, the case fatality rate was 1% from June 1st through August 9th of this year. It was 2% over the same days last year. Looking at a longer time frame, the case fatality rate all this year is 1.5%, and the case fatality rate for all of last year was 1.8%. In other words, the fatality rate from COVID appears to be steadily declining. With yet another chart from the CDC showing exactly what they're trying to say here. The lower lethality of the Delta variant makes sense. Like any other infectious disease, COVID picked off the low-hanging fruit. First, the very sick and elderly. 
So the case fatality rate plunged after its initial spike in early 2020 when it was around 6%. And of course, doctors and hospitals also learned about better ways to treat the disease, no doubt saving lives. And the vaccines that unexpectedly appeared last November have since created a vastly larger pool of people with immunity to the new virus. The vaccinated who are catching the Delta variant are experiencing far milder symptoms than they would have otherwise. So far, in fact, there have been 38, I'm sorry, 36.8 million recorded cases of COVID. There are 167 million people fully vaccinated. This is in the U.S. and another 29 million partially vaccinated. Now, that means roughly 60 percent of the nation either has had COVID or has been vaccinated. Even assuming there's a lot of overlap between the two groups, that's still a massive number of people with at least some immunity to the disease. Here's another way to look at it. And this is a chart that shows death from all causes so far this year are now lower in every age group than last year, especially among the elderly. This, too, is sourced from the CDC. But while the disease has become less fearsome, the public perception hasn't changed. And so the fixation on case counts only feeds the public's anxiety. Yes, there are certain areas where hospital resources are being strained at the moment, but overall, hospital capacity is far from reaching its limit. Data from Johns Hopkins University of Medicine's tracking center shows 25% of intensive care, bed, intensive care unit beds in the country are not occupied. Even in hotspots like Texas, 10% of ICU beds are available, as are 20% of inpatient beds. 10% of Florida's ICU beds and 16% of inpatient beds are currently unoccupied. So why isn't this seemingly good news about COVID making headlines? Well, here's one possibility. The public health community and leftist politicians don't want to give up their newfound powers. Now, see, that makes sense to me. They've got a taste of power and they liked it. If COVID goes away, Anthony Fauci suddenly becomes just another annoying bureaucrat that nobody pays attention to. Rather than a demigod on whose every word the public hangs to know whether we should have one or two masks. The article also says in leftists who've not been able to, or who rather have been able to boss people around and spend taxpayer money at levels no one would have ever tolerated before COVID. Well, they're loath for things to get back to normal. And there's also the fact that the current outbreak provides another chance for Democrats to score political points against Republicans, just as we saw in the initial outbreak. Republican governors are coming under vicious and constant attack for not being sufficiently authoritarian, despite the growing body of scientific evidence that lockdowns and mask mandates are largely ineffective. So the uh, insights and issues uh, or issues and insights uh, editorial board says, look, power doesn't only corrupt. It's also highly addictive. And the fear of suffering painful withdrawal symptoms supersedes any other symptom. Wow. Or any other consideration. That's uh, that that rings true. Now, of course, I'm not I'm not trying to. Tell people you have to think one way. I'm, I'm certainly encouraging you. Don't just buy into the dominant narrative. COVID's bad, okay? <laughs> Get the shot, okay? Nope. 
I think this is a time where we've all got to proceed with great caution. Tom Woods has been one of the voices of reason that I have have turned to in uh, the last few years just for a solid take. And this is not to say he's good, he walks on water, everything he says is absolutely true, but the man has put some pretty serious uh, research into things before he sticks his neck out. He does not come off as a fool or somebody who's shooting from the hip. And the fact that he just survived a pretty serious bout with COVID, including pneumonia, he wouldn't change anything. I thought it was really interesting. He had actually had written a letter to the person who gave him the virus. You should hear this. He says, to the person who gave me the virus, I have no idea who you are, but our paths almost surely crossed last month in Vegas. Even now, I wouldn't change a thing about that trip, by the way, which was a blast. The existence of the virus, it's true, made my life a fraction of 1% more dangerous than it was before. But since I don't have any mental disorders, I hadn't calibrated my risk tolerance so precisely that such a tiny change would make me radically alter my life. Naturally, if you knew you were sick, you should have stayed home. All of, of all the advice they'd given, mask wearing, social distancing, and all the rest, staying home when you're sick would do by far the most good. Yet we hear it urged upon us the least. He says, at the same time, the Hill reports that you can easily confuse the symptoms of the virus for allergies. So it's entirely possible not to be aware that you're contagious. I see no reason to assume bad will on your part. Now, Tom Woods goes on to say, every time I leave my house, I am taking a risk. We all are. I don't blame you for the constraints imposed by reality. If the chance of being struck by lightning increased tenfold tomorrow, this would not affect my behavior in any way. Not being neurotic, I don't live my life as if the present rate of lightning strikes is precisely as high as I can tolerate. He says it's only become almost impossible to have a rational conversation about any of this. For one thing, most people are shockingly misinformed. Ask the average person what the likelihood is of someone in his age cohort needing to be hospitalized for COVID, and the answer will be off by a factor of 10, if not 100, guaranteed. For that matter, he says, I can't think how many people think masks are accomplishing anything. The laughable studies on masks generally assume what they set out to prove and or confine themselves to strangely arbitrary time frames before explosions in COVID spread. Dozens of countries have seen their COVID charts go almost vertical after, not necessarily immediately after, but after introducing large-scale masking, which is what the charts would look like if masks accomplished nothing. But these places are ignored because no one is told about them. Meanwhile, there have been essentially zero COVID deaths in Sweden over the past month, and the rest of Scandinavia is also doing very well, despite very little masking or other restrictions. Yet the world acts as if these countries do not exist. As usual with the you're to blame for the virus people, success stories like these are of no interest because there's nobody they can demonize. Demonizing people is their favorite pastime. The case of Nepal is interesting, too. After a lockdown that ended in July 2020, they decided essentially to proceed as normal. Now, they're a poor country, and they chose the radical, unheard-of approach of overturning a policy that would have had them starving to death. And guess what? They're doing fine. Public health officials were stumped, but at this point, who can be surprised by that? What we laughingly call our public health establishment has made fools of themselves during this entire fiasco. 
Nepal is at 340 deaths per million. Compare that to locked down countries like the UK, 1,909 deaths per million. Spain, 1,756 deaths per million. Belgium, 2,170 per million. Or Peru, 583, 500, I'm sorry, 5,883 per million. Back in the United States, the Sunbelt spike of 2020 came down with zero behavioral changes of any kind. The COVID is your fault. People are just too determined to blame someone who shows any curiosity about this, even though it should evoke curiosity. So don't be afraid to ask questions. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. My fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As we celebrate our five-year anniversary, America Out Loud has expanded its mission through a newly designed website with a host of new contributors, all carrying a vibrant message of hope and survival for this country we love. AmericaOutloud.com. Together, we'll secure the future for generations to come. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. My name is Brian Hyde. I'm sitting in for Tim Alders. In the last segment, I was sharing a letter to the person who gave me COVID from Tom Woods. And I really, I appreciate Tom Woods' approach to this. 
He says, it's true. I was definitely laid up in bed for a while, but not a single kid should have missed a single basketball practice to keep me from getting sick. In fact, he says, imagine the selfishness involved in that kind of a demand. Screw that. And he says, nor should you, mysterious Las Vegas person, feel sorry for me. I don't want you staying in your house. I don't want you refusing to live. I'm glad you were out living your life, enjoying things that make life worth living. Merely preserving your biological existence is unworthy of a human being. This is especially so when we've all been given no indication of precisely what would constitute an all-clear. It's just arbitrariness piled upon more anti-scientific arbitrariness. He does say what sort of life, or actually he quotes Lord Sumption in the UK, what sort of life do we think we are protecting? There is more to life than the avoidance of death. Life is a drink with friends. Life is a crowded football match or a live concert. Life is a family celebration with children and grandchildren. Life is companionship, an arm around one's back, laughter or tears shared at less than two meters. These are not just optional extras. They are life itself. They're fundamental to our humanity, to our existence as social beings. Of course, death is permanent, whereas joy may be temporarily suspended. But the force of that point depends on how temporary it really is. End quote. So Tom Wood says, thank you, Las Vegas person, for refusing to be inhuman, for refusing to be an automaton, and for saying yes to those things that bring us joy and make our lives meaningful. That's pretty lofty sentiment from a guy who was, you know, fighting for his life just a few weeks ago. But I think he's right. I think he actually, I think Tom Woods, having come out on the other side of COVID, he's on the mend. Looked like he was doing pretty well at uh, whatever event it was he was introducing Ron Paul. I think it was Young Americans for Liberty or something. He was introducing him a couple weeks ago. But uh, yeah, how do you break that, that mentality that says everything is so scary and so dangerous? How can we possibly, you know, make the world a safe place? And the answer is you can't. There are going to be risks. And any time there is risk involved, choice has to be a part of the equation. It cannot be otherwise. Otherwise, we just freeze in place like so many sheep. You know, one of the interesting things about this is the, the fact checkers have become so ubiquitous in our lives. I've actually got to the point now, I don't even see... You know, the little pop-up, visit the COVID-19 Information Center for vaccine resources, or this contains partially true or partially untrue information. Well, for crying out loud, what would we have done before the fact-checkers were here to check all of our facts for us? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but we didn't talk a lot about fact-checkers. We didn't talk a lot about fake news. Back before there was real concern that somebody might be playing fast and loose, with the information that they're beaming at us day in and day out. It's kind of like we didn't have to talk about safe sex back when sex was actually confined to marriage. I realize not everybody's old enough to remember that, but some of us, you know, recall. That's right. Safe sex wasn't even a thing because, yeah, there were people who had extramarital sex, but the expectation was, you know what, that's a low-class thing to do. Respectable people kept it private and kept it, you know, within a committed marriage relationship. I don't want to go down that path for now, but you get the idea. 
Who fact checks the fact checkers? Why did we ever need fact checkers in the first place? Can't you just tell us the facts and let us decide what it means? There's an excellent study which was done by the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's a lengthy one. It's, this is a legit study. But I want to commend it to uh, your consideration, especially if you're tired of the fact checkers rushing out every time you read anything that challenges the main narrative and to tell you, no, you can't think that. It's wrong. We tried to protect you from it, but you clicked on it anyways. This is from Philip Magnus and also Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org. Who fact checks the who fact checks the fact checkers? A report on media censorship. And they talk about the advent of fact checker journalism may be wearing out its welcome. Perhaps the increasing politicization of American life is a contributor to the downward spiral of the fact checking profession. It's primarily run by politically engaged reporters, not expert specialists in the subjects they assess by any sense of the imagination. Not that any one group of experts should have the authority over the truth, either. Self-appointed media gatekeepers are a ticking time bomb of political censorship, waiting to be unleashed when the temptations are too great and the necessity for impartiality is even greater. But with White House Press Secretary Jen Jen Psaki calling for collusion between social media companies and the government to censor misinformation, you see the air quotes, this threat seems to be as close as ever. Although fact checkers purport to be independent guardians of accountability, recent events have exposed them as mere enforcers of fashionable political positions. This brings us to a relatively new but powerful company known as NewsGuard, which claims a partnership with Microsoft and gleaming spotlights in major outlets. Its staff and board boast powerful connections to the government, finance, and the media. According to an op-ed in Politico written by NewGuard's CEO, rather than simply being a fact-checking company that can only debunk stories after they go viral, NewsGuard rates entire websites' trustworthiness. Now, this new strategy is aimed at discrediting the very source that alleged misinformation or disinformation may come from. NewsGuard publishes lengthy nutritional labels, rating websites on various uh, criteria of journalistic importance, and outlining its reasons for giving certain reasons, or certain ratings, rather. Perhaps one day these ratings may be used to filter out certain websites, which is what NewsGuard CEO alludes to by citing the great political scientist Francis Fukuyama's article in Foreign Affairs. In fact, the company made the following tweet on July 17, 2021, essentially siding with Saki's call for a government media partnership to censor Internet content. Here's what the tweet said. When NewsGuard offered Facebook our data on websites that spread misinformation at the start of the pandemic, they didn't want it. Picking fights with POTUS, President of the United States, won't fix the misinformation epidemic. Working collaboratively will. Our door is open. Now, phrases like working collaboratively and our door is open reveal that NewsGuard envisions itself as having a prominent role in any collusive arrangement that arises from the White House's recent statements. Their posturing for influence, however, obscures a more basic question, and that is, why should we trust a self-appointed fact-checker? Indeed, who fact-checks the fact-checkers? 
So after receiving a recent request for comments on a fact-check article by NewsGuard regarding the American Institute for Economic Research and the Great Barrington Declaration, Phil Magnus and Ethan Yang say we decided to investigate the rise of the fact-checking phenomenon itself, including the strange new company's own performance in evaluating the content of other websites. Most of the company's fact-checkers lack basic qualifications in the scientific and social scientific fields they purport to arbitrate. NewsGuard's own track record of commentary, particularly on the COVID-19 pandemic, reveals a pattern of unreliable, misleading claims that required subsequent corrections and analysis that regularly conflates fact with opinion journalism in rendering a judgment on a website's content. Furthermore, the company's own practices fall short of the transparency and disclosure standards it regularly applies to other websites. Well, that sounds exactly like the kind of organization I would want fact-checking everything I'm feeding my brain. I mean, I can trust them, right? A revealing example of this can be found in NewsGuard's treatment of the lab leak hypothesis for COVID-19's origins. Media coverage of the lab leak theory, which posits that the pandemic originated through the accidental infection of workers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who were studying coronaviruses in bat populations, has changed dramatically in recent months after a closer examination of evidence led several scientists to lend it credence. Political figures, including President Joe Biden and White House medical advisor Anthony Fauci, now consider the lab leak theory plausible and have called for an investigation of the Wuhan facility. Now, for over a year prior to these recent developments, however, NewsGuard aggressively fact-checked and penalized other websites for even raising the possibility of a lab leak. Some of the most aggressive attacks came from John Gregory, NewsGuard's deputy editor for health policy, and also the primary correspondent in AIER's exchanges with the company. In March 2020, Gregory sent a separate inquiry to another website charging charging it with promoting unfounded conspiracy theories about the virus's origins, and specifically what's known as the lab leak hypothesis. Quote, there is no evidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the source of the outbreak, and genomic evidence has found that the virus is 96% identical at the whole genome level to a bat coronavirus continued Gregory's email, which also suggested that NewsGuard would be flagging and downgrading the website for publishing misinformation about this subject. Now, while the website in question, an alternative medicine blog, promoted other fringe claims that warranted scrutiny and legitimate corrections, Gregory's focus on specifically discrediting the lab leak thesis suggests he was interjecting his own political opinions into the fact-checking exercise. In another example from February of 2020, Gregory announced by tweet that he had contacted a medical news website after it ran a headline suggesting coronavirus may have leaked from China's highest biosafety lab. Gregory demanded a formal correction or retraction of the headline. But after we contacted Gregory by email to question him about the practice of penalizing websites for discussing the lab leak hypothesis, he responded, My February 2020 tweet was also accurate, asserting that his position was justified on the grounds that the lab leak theory remains unsubstantiated and under investigation. Now, NewsGuard has taken a similar line in its reassessment of ratings on some 225 websites where it docked the source 
for mentioning the lab leak hypothesis, stating that while not substantiated, the lab leak theory is also, as of now, not provably false. So despite Gregory's tenditious uh, phrasing, he nonetheless quietly deleted the tweet in the days following AIER's inquiry. The company also found itself in deeper trouble over trouble over its previous mischaracterizations of the lab leak hypothesis as a conspiracy theory, a common refrain in Gregory's articles on the subject. In late June 2021, NewsGuard had to issue at least 21 separate connections to ratings where it docked websites for reporting on the lab leak theory. According to a statement the company sent to AIER, NewsGuard either mischaracterized the site's claims about the lab leak theory, referring to the lab leak as a conspiracy theory, or wrongly grouped together unproven claims about the lab leak with the separate false claim that the COVID-19 virus was man-made without explaining that one claim was unsubstantiated and the other was false. NewsGuard apologizes for these errors. We have made the appropriate correction on each of the 21 labels. Now, Phil Magnus and Ethan Yang say NewsGuard has not published the full results of its audit or a list of the corrections it made, thereby precluding independent verification of whether its corrections were sufficient to rectify the COVID misinformation it had previously published. The company did not respond to AIER's request for this this information. So while these corrections are a welcome development from the company, they also reveal a deeper underlying hubris that characterizes NewsGuard's general approach to vetting COVID-19 content. Gregory and other fact-checkers at the site appear to have concluded as early as February and March of 2020 that the lab leak hypothesis was nothing more than a fringe conspiracy theory and began using this descriptor to attack and downgrade almost any website that subsequently raised the very possibility that it was investigation-worthy. Now, this hubris persisted until a reassessment of the claim led mainstream scientists as well as political figures like Biden and Fauci to deem the hypothesis plausible and call for a comprehensive investigation into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Gregory and his colleagues appear to have simply decided that their own premature dismissal of the lab leak hypothesis equated to fact and proceeded to penalize other sites for not factual errors but rather for diverging from NewsGuard's own editorial position on the same subject. Yet when this position turned out to be mistaken, NewsGuard pivoted to remove the errors, albeit in non-transparent ways, that downplay the significance or pervasiveness of their mistake. I'm sorry if that sounds accusatory, but it is. I mean, come on. These are the fact-checkers. How else can can this add up to anything other than the fact checkers aren't being as open and transparent with the facts of their own behavior? But hey, we can trust them, right? The article goes on to say AIER's own experience with NewsGuard revealed a similar pattern of carelessness and misrepresentation by Gregory and other writers for the company. Now, it says Gregory contacted us on behalf of NewsGuard in early June 2021, requesting comments on several articles relating to COVID-19 pandemic policy and the Great Barrington Declaration. AIER's Phil Magnus obliged the request by offering to answer his questions in good faith, but quickly discovered that they carried heavy political biases. 
arising from Gregory's own personal beliefs about COVID-19, healthcare policy, American politics, and related subjects. So in one such example, Gregory asked a prejudicial question that attempted to implicate AIER with showing partisan political biases in our publications. Quote, we also note that AIER.org refers to itself as nonpartisan. Why then do its articles routinely criticize Democrats, such as in a June 21st, I'm sorry, June 2021 article that stated Biden has never provided any evidence that he is more trustworthy on corruption than any other career Washington politician? Or another recent article that said Biden, Fauci and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi do not care if their policies destroy the nuclear family, the educational system and moral and religious value systems, the very pillars of civil society, end quote. Now they say Gregory's question, however selectively cherry-picked, only two articles on our site where we criticize Democratic politicians. It made no mention of the many examples where AIER has similarly criticized Republicans, such as former President Donald Trump, over excessive spending, tariffs, support for lockdowns, and illiberal political posturing. As Magnus responded, the focus of AIER's criticism is also shaped by who happens to be in political power at the time. Gregory's line of questioning about Democrats appears to have intentionally ignored numerous instances where we have similarly criticized Republicans when they were in power. Gregory's questions displayed a similar pattern of conflating normative policy positions taken by individual authors on AIER's website, essentially opinion articles, and all properly identified as such for positive or empirical claims, which could then be fact-checked. As a result, his questions treated prescriptive policy opinions that diverged from his own viewpoints as if they were scientific claims, even when the normative nature of the argument was explicitly stated up front. So in one example, the authors of a fact-checked argument prefaced their opinions on how vaccines should be prioritized as their own beliefs, including identifying it as our views on this subject. Since AIER publishes a variety, a diversity of positions, including arguments that diverge from the viewpoints of AIER's full-time research faculty, it's fundamentally inaccurate to portray individual opinion essays as AIER.org's claims, as NewsGuard does. Indeed, Magnus has written at length in favor of expanding vaccination access despite FDA and CDC regulatory obstacles, taking the exact opposite position of the viewpoint that Gregory attributes to the organization. When Magnus replied to Gregory by calling attention to the difference between normative and positive arguments, as well as the editorial diversity of external contributors to our daily publications, he ignored the distinction. Gregory's subsequent article proceeded to blur the two together, erroneously depicting normative points of disagreement as positive scientific claims that could then be fact-checked against his own position. Yeah, that's not real honest. Even more problematic was NewsGuard's portrayal of the Great Barrington Declaration signed at AIER in October of 2020. Gregory's synopsis of the GBD contained numerous false and misleading claims that were brought to the attention of his company almost immediately after their publication. Repeating a charge from another website, Gregory wrote that none of the three GBD authors, that's Great Barrington Declaration authors, had published peer-reviewed research about the COVID-19 pandemic at the time they authored the declaration. Now, that claim is false. 
Great Barrington Declaration co-author Jay Bhattacharya was part of a team of scientists from Stanford University that conducted one of the first wide-scale seroprevalent studies of COVID-19 at the outset of the pandemic. Their results appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association in May of 2020. When contacted by AIER about this error in his article, Gregory conceded that the claim will require a correction on our part, though he appended it with a snide denigration of Bhattacharya for being listed as the seventh author on the study. Bhattacharya was in fact a principal co-author, but was listed last rather per a convention with how some medical journal articles identify senior-ranked investigators. Bhattacharya was also a primary media contact about his study's findings at the time of its release. NewsGuard's depiction of the GBD contained other clear misrepresentations of its contents and positions. For example, Gregory wrote the Great Barrington Declaration argued that restrictions meant to reduce the spread of the COVID-19 virus, such as face masks, should be eliminated for people considered to be at lower risk of severe illness and death from COVID-19. Now, the text of the Great Barrington Declaration makes no mention of face mask policy. Only lockdowns and similar restrictions on schools and businesses. NewsGuard did not respond to multiple requests from AIER to correct this erroneous characterization. Gregory's article also displayed a clear pattern of relying upon dubious and unqualified secondary sources to evaluate the scientific merits of the GBD. In an email to AIER, NewsGuard co-CEO Stephen Brill stated, When we make judgments about health case sites, we rely on, and quote, sources who are the experts. Well, that's not the case with their assessment of the Great Barrington Declaration. Rather than quoting scientific experts, NewsGuard's review of the Great Barrington Declaration relies primarily on a statement by former UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock, a politician who has no formal scientific or medical training. In a passage quoted by Gregory, Hancock stated that the Great Barrington Declaration is underpinned by two central claims, and both are emphatically false. First, it says that if enough people get COVID, we will reach herd immunity. That is not true. We should have no confidence that we would ever reach herd immunity to COVID, even if everyone caught it. Now, Hancock's statement, however, is at direct odds with mainstream science on immunology. The World Health Organization specifically defines herd immunity as the combined total of immunity acquired by vaccination and by natural infection and recovery. Although it differs from the GBD authors on how to most effectively reach this point, the World Health Organization does not dispute the existence or attainment of herd immunity itself. Even among among pro-lockdown sources, herd immunity is still seen as a reachable goal and a primary aim of mass vaccination, contrary to Hancock's claims. Dr. Anthony Fauci, for example, has frequently stated that he anticipates reaching herd immunity after between 70 and 85 percent of the U.S. population is vaccinated or recovered from COVID-19. Most other public health scientists agree that herd immunity is attainable through a combination of vaccination and natural immunity, even though some of them differ from the Great Barrington Declaration authors about the role of specific policy interventions in reaching this point. Now, Hancock's statement cited as authoritative by NewsGuard further contended, the second claim of the the Great Barrington Declaration is that we can segregate the old and vulnerable on our way to herd immunity. This is simply not possible. 
Now, this is not a scientific statement, but rather Hancock's political opinion. A detailed plan for arguing for the feasibility of focused protection measures was published by the GBD authors to accompany the declaration itself. More importantly, the scientific literature on COVID-19 mitigation documents clear evidence that the success or failure of a country to shield its nursing homes through a focused protection strategy is a primary factor in its overall mortality rate. A study by John P. Ioannidis in the journal BMJ Global Health compared the nursing home shielding ratios of several countries, concluding they varied markedly in the extent to which they protected high-risk groups. Contrary to Hancock's political claims, Ioannidis concluded, both effective precision shielding and detrimental inverse protection can happen in real-life circumstances. COVID-19 interventions should seek to achieve maximal precision shielding. Now, there's quite a bit to this uh, this report. There's more than I can possibly share with you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna cut to the chase here. Is NewsGuard qualified to police facts? AIER pokes some pretty good holes in their credibility. In fact, they they ask the question: Would NewsGuard even pass its own tests? On things like credibility, meaning it doesn't repeatedly publish false content. It gathers and presents information responsibly. Because it's questionable. Does it regularly correct or clarify its errors? Does it handle the difference between news and opinion responsibly? Does it avoid deceptive headlines? And of course, then there's the case of transparency too. Does the website disclose ownership and financing? Does it clearly label advertising? Does it reveal who's in charge, including possible conflicts of interest? Does their site provide the name of content creators along with either contact or biographical information? So here are the key takeaways. First of all, their rating of NewsGuard uh, as far as whether it lives up to its own lofty ideals, the way it judges other websites, is they gave it 3625 out of a possible 100 points, meaning the website fails to adhere to several basic journalistic standards and should be used with extreme caution as a source for verifying the reliability of the websites it purports to rate. Among the other key takeaways, Ethan Yang and Phil Magnus said the best, the truth rather, is best sought through the marketplace of ideas where reason and evidence are the weapons of choice. When we see fact-checkers like NewsGuard, who not only fail to uphold their high-sounding principles, but even publicly encourage working with the government to suppress speech, we should raise red flags. NewsGuard's behavior illustrates the tired idea that during events like COVID-19, we should simply do as we're told and not question the government or its, its experts. On this matter, they've shown themselves to either be unable to appropriately moderate public discourse or act as little more than cheerleaders for, a favored, for favored political figures and their preferred policy approaches to COVID-19. In fact, they say it wouldn't be a stretch if they happened to be both. I mean, that doesn't to me sound like a total hatchet job, although it puts a pretty, pretty good smack on the fact checkers. NewsGuard, I mean, maybe they started out with the best of intentions, but... It sure seems like, uh, no, that's, that's the ministry of truth. 
at work. Kind of a semi-private, semi-government creation there to make sure that only approved ideas make their way to the public. None of this changes the fact that you and I ultimately bear responsibility for confirming or disproving whatever information we're consuming. And I understand it can be extremely difficult because, you know, there's a blizzard of information coming at us pretty much any time of the day. How many devices are right there in your immediate immediate vicinity that are broadcasting messages at you? How many screens do you look at in the course of a day that are competing for your allegiance, competing for your eyes? The only answer that I know is, look, you, you're not going to find a perfectly unbiased, perfectly objective source of news. Long as human beings are the ones surprising it, or ones supplying it, rather, that's not going to be in the cards. So that means you and I have to be propaganda-proof. And the best way to do that is to work on doing your own original research, doing your own study, even if that means reading original documents. It's hard. It's time-consuming. It'll take you away from riding your four-wheeler or fishing or whatever else you want to do. The question is, though, is it worth it? I would say, yeah, probably. Thanks again for being a part of the Disciples of Liberty audience here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders.